0: Well, this morning, we continue our uh, twice-yearly mini-series called Grace Stories. These are raw, honest snapshots from the lives of GRC members just like you and like me. They courageously help us to tear down the facades we tend to put up around our lives that falsely communicate that everything is fine all right, okay with my life, that everything's good, that Christians don't struggle with faith. The more we hear these real stories, the more we realize that these are our stories, that the pain and the struggle and the conflict and the brokenness that these folks share about, they afflict us too, and so the message that we are hoping to absorb is then let's stop pretending that everything's all right okay about our lives. Let's admit that we're broken, that we live in a broken world, that we need the grace of God that has been most fully revealed in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Today, Kristen Martinez is ready to share her story. It's a story of a heart shaped by pain and grief and fear. It's a heart that has learned to survive But more importantly, this is the story of the heart of a woman who is learning that real survival means letting go and trusting in the one who alone can heal everything that's broken. Kristen.
1: Okay. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at His feet I bow. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. I have heard those lines from my favorite hymn my entire life. I grew up in a Christian home. My grandfather was a missionary. Family members were elders. We are all a family that is committed to the church and our love for God. With imperfections, of course, but still committed. I used to listen to that song and become very frustrated because I wanted my heart to feel what that song so beautifully said. To surrender to Jesus in all the ways the song describes. Freely, humbly, wholly surrender. But my own visions of myself and who I was supposed to be has gotten in the way. So let me share a bit of my story to work toward freely, humbly, and wholly surrendering my heart to Jesus. Ever have that friend you call in crisis? The friend you know that, uh, that will think through all the steps quicker than you can and just get you through it. That is me. I can see how to get through a situation with some semblance of togetherness. This trait was something my family recognized me in my whole life, but they describe it a little different. They call it stubbornness and wits. But I prefer a crisis handler. Why was so good? Why was I so good at handling crisis? Six years of sexual abuse helps. I found a way to persevere. Pretend that everything was always okay. And I don't mean to have put that lightly. Um, My abusers themselves told me to pray to God for, uh, for his strength because otherwise other people in my life would be hurt. My sister and cousin were hurt anyway. But it took me years to understand that those sinners who hurt me were hurt themselves, that they were broken themselves, that this was a result of a sinful, temporary world, that we all suffer the burden of sin, We suffer the burden of sin to refine us. We suffer because we are called to suffer because he who knew no sin suffered the worst to have a sinful, to save a sinful, broken world. A sinful, broken me that by my own merit did not deserve it. Thinking through how to fight through my own pain, to always put a smile on my face and to pretend to carry on. When I shared this piece of, that piece of my story with someone, the first response was, Kristen, God will use your story to, to get someone else through this. And my, reg- my gut reaction was not the beautiful words of the hymn, To Surrender All to Jesus. My reaction was somewhere between, God is turning me into one of those sad ladies crying on a Sunday in front of the church, to how can my God be so cruel? I remember saying to the friend I shared this with that my shame and sadness is not what I want to share with the world. And yet, isn't that the gospel? The shame and brokenness redeemed by God's own perfect son being broken and shamed. I was not ready to handle my own crisis yet. I was not surrendering. I was not ready to be Paul from Saul. I did not see the eternal purpose, yet even though I thought, um, I believed in God's sovereign grace and sacrifice to redeem me, but I don't think I fully grasped that. God was not done molding my story yet to make me surrender. I was not saying mercy yet, and believe me, I was the kid that tolerated so much pain that it was always the other kid's arm who hurt, trying to give me the Indian burn. And I can say that because I'm Indian. <laughs> the words, God will, Kristen, God will use your story, haunted me. I felt that I always saw God use people's tragedies to build their testimony. I did not want a tragic story. I thought I, heard, I thought I had earned some right to relief. Didn't I pay my dues? I'm not naive. I know life is hard. I know there are burdens and struggles. I am a crisis handler. I persevere. But what was my limit? This is where I fell short of seeking God and looked into my own qualities, when I should have looked deeper into his. Remember, God uses our stories, right? But maybe less selfishly, I should say, God highlights his story. I am not the point. Salvation is. I am not the star. His son is. I am not worthy. His son was. Jesus was sinless. I am a sinner, and yet he saved me anyway. In anything I have experienced, could I really say I was blameless? Absolutely not. But Jesus could, and he died for me anyway. As a nurse, blood does not scare me. Ask my husband. He can attest to my lack of filter when describing any work story involving blood. But come on, it's in everyone. It's not scary. It just is. That is, until you're pregnant. When you're pregnant, the thought of blood terrifies you. From the second I was pregnant, I would obsessively Google miscarriage, obsessively ask questions to the mothers around me if they had felt every single pang I was feeling. Then I would try and find my faith again in sermon, songs, and scriptures, because come on, pregnancy should be an exciting, joyful time. Frank and I were so excited, we told everyone close to us uh, as soon as we saw them after we found out. People warned us to wait 12 weeks, but we said we want to share in our joy and our sorrow because that is what Christians do the joy I felt being sick to my stomach all the time is something I cannot fully describe. The awe I felt that God would bless us so quickly after deciding to try really fooled me into thinking my story was changing. I was going to be one of those sunny, positive Jesus people that says, God is so good. (laughs) Look at my perfect life. As if any of it works that way, need I remind you that I still was not surrendering So here we are, pregnant, happy, and telling people, and then what comes to rear its formerly unassuming head. Blood. Blood that panicked me so much that I called my blood-phobic husband in a panic. Blood that sent the nurse into a tailspin, asking him, what do I do? Blood that sent me to my doctor's office to see our first ultrasound confirming a death rather than a life. I had the option for a DNC, and opted not to because I needed closure. Let me tell you, and I'm sure the ladies that have gone through a miscarriage will tell you, it hurts. No one told me it would hurt like a pseudo-labor. No one told me that the stubborn crisis handler that never cried would sob for weeks. Frank described it as a grief he had never heard from me before, a sob that scared him. A sob that said, God, Why? Please show me mercy. I still remember praying for God to help me not feel this. God, please help me to just move on. To move on beyond this loss. So I trucked along and trucked along thinking I could find I could be normal to find myself pregnant again less than 3 weeks after the first miscarriage. This time I was different. This time I said, please don't tell anyone. This time, I hid my sickness. This time, I was, so, I was ashamed and did it in private with just my husband and my mother. Every appointment was terrifying. Every moment to the bathroom filled me with the angst to seeing blood again. Week four went by, week five went by, week six went by, and I was still pregnant. My blood levels were good. Week 10 went by. And when you're pregnant, clearly you're obsessed with calculating time in weeks. I secretly struggled, struggled, faked it until I made it. But that is not how life works. Faking it is not what God called us to do. The second miscarriage. The second miscarriage that could have been prevented, according to Dr. Two. The second miscarriage that was more painful than the first and I had to have during a shift at the hospital. The second miscarriage that left me reeling. The second miscarriage in six months that left my heart broken. The second miscarriage that left me a shell of who I was before. The second miscarriage that made me wonder why the word miscarriage was rarely said. The second miscarriage that made me sad at seeing pregnancy announcements. The second miscarriage that made the sting of being asked why we didn't want kids after three years of marriage unbearable. The second miscarriage that brought me to God in a way that I had never been, accepting that I could not control this, that I could not persevere on my own. I could not stubborn my way through this. I had to seek God because my brokenness had to mean something. There's that pesky gospel again. Brokenness brought redemption. Finally realizing that it was not about me. God used this pain to break the idol I had of my suffering. And I finally accepted it was an idol I was somehow using to convince myself that I deserved more. Let's compare what I have been through as a sinful human to what my Savior went through as a yes, human, but a sinless one. None of my losses compared to the loss of a father of his uh, divine, blameless son. God never failed me. The old will pass away and the new things come. And I will see how all things fit for the glory of God. I've heard this comparison a few times, most recently from Matt Chandler referencing a bishop in South Africa named Augustine. Have you ever put your face against stained glass? Up close... Stained glass looks like something horrible and shattered, but if we take a step back, it is beyond beautiful. God sees the entire beautiful stained glass window while I have spent years with my face against the window. I stand before you, not a sunshine Jesus person that speaks all kinds of Christianese, but a sinner broken whose hope is that God is who he says he is a sinner that believes in, the, in, God's goodness, in God's goodness. This is not to delude myself to think that we will have a baby on our own because God is good, but that I believe that God is still good, even if he said, says, not this way, but another. I had to relearn or maybe learn for the first time that God has given me his word on my future, for I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Hope is a funny thing that ebbs and flows in the heart of a sinner. Hope is something I found, but that not always stays. Hope sometimes gets drowned out by the fear of more hurt. Hope sometimes gets drowned out by thoughts of, I'm not strong enough. And the truth is, I am not strong enough. But I have a father who is. I have a father who can. I have a father that loves. I'm still learning what that means every day. But I can, what I can leave you with is this. These words mean more to me now than they ever did before. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine.
0: Father, thank you for strengthening your daughter. Thank you for the obvious work of your Holy Spirit that alone could strengthen Kristen to endure old and recent trials and yet still trust that you are good, that you are Abba Father, that Your mercies will prevail, that Your promises will never be thwarted. Thank You for her courage. Use it, Lord, to free others' hearts, to not suffer alone, but to share and come into the light of Christ that there might be the hope of healing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Kristen. The Spirit is at work when you wonder how in the world somebody could do that, but God has provided grace sufficient for the day. And uh, we trust that as some of you who have endured similar suffering um, realize you don't need to suffer alone, that we can heal together. And uh, I don't want to forget this. At the end of the service, uh, two women are going to be up front right here to your left. Should any of you want to come forward and uh, simply ask for prayer, you don't need to um, give any details of what you're going through, but if you just want to come forward and have somebody pray for you or with you, uh, they'll be up front, uh, two women. Last week, I walked through a lot of detail in Jack Gidney's story. This morning, I'll take a different approach, not because Kristen's story is any less compelling, but she made reference to a verse from the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. I'm going to move over so I can not put you behind the the pole. Um, And I'm going to use that context of Jeremiah 29 to aim at some big-picture perspective on suffering and hope. It shows that God's promise to bless His people is not canceled out by the messiness and brokenness of our lives. Jeremiah 29 contains a letter from the prophet Jeremiah, who was in Jerusalem, sent to the Israelites who were living in exile in Babylon because the nation of Babylon had conquered the people in Jerusalem and carted off the inhabitants to this foreign land. And here's how that letter starts, verse 4. Listen carefully. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I again ask that your spirit would do this work to show us the beauty, the truth, the power of your word, not just to ancient Israel. But to us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure we can fully understand the impact of exile as it occurred to these ancient Israelites. Some of you this morning immigrated to the U.S. and you personally do know something about showing up in a foreign land with limited language skills, with one suitcase to your name, dealing with all kinds of foreign cultural practices, being treated as outsiders and struggling constantly to fit in and not quite making it. Many more of us were born here to immigrant parents, and we also know something about what that's like to be an outsider looking in. But Choosing to come to America, the land of opportunity, to, to make a better future for your, your family and uh, the, the, the next generation, that inherently has some kind of reward, doesn't it? These painful sacrifices that we're making are going to make life better for ourselves and our children. That, that's the mentality of coming to America. But that's very different from the Israelites being brutally conquered by a pagan nation, uh, having Jerusalem, the, the city which gave the Israelites their identity, being reduced to rubble and being forced to march out of that city with nothing but your clothes on your back and settling in a foreign land, which is who knows where in the world. That's very different coming to America as an immigrant than saying goodbye to Israel, which was already the promised land because God had given it to your ancestors. That makes Jeremiah's challenge through his letter that much more surprising. He doesn't say God is going to send rescuers, just hold out, you know. Look out the window to the west, and you'll see your deliverers coming soon enough. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I don't know how this happened. I don't, uh, Pray that God would reverse course. Pray that He would undo what He's allowed to happen. He doesn't say that. He, he says, people, as much as you hate being there in Babylon, in a land of foreign worship and foreign culture and foreign language with, with the racial tensions that come with it, don't resist your rulers. He says, cultivate contentment, settle down, carry on with life, with friendship, with family. I even want you to seek the peace and prosperity of this people and this city in which you live. Pray for its health, not for getting out of jail. Don't believe those among you, the religious ones, the prophets, he even says, who promise this will all be over soon, don't dream about an easy way out, you'll be there for 70 years, seven zero. You know, today the average lifespan is, is over 70 years, isn't it, here in this country? But back then, it was far less. And, and so what, what did that mean for Jeremiah to say, you're going to be there 70 years, settle down? It meant pretty much all of you are going to die where right where you are you'll never make it home. This is where God has you for a longer than a season. And then only after this message about the exile and how the Israelites should cultivate an attitude in exile do we get to verse 11, which Simone uh, grabbed hold of in her prayer, and which Kristen quoted. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I'm not speaking about Christians quoting when I say this. People love to quote Jeremiah 29 11 and to claim its promises for themselves that God has plans to prosper, to bless, to bring hope, and most people want it and they believe that it will come now, or at least soon. That's how it tends to be, dare I say, overquoted, quoted over-applied, over-trusted, in a sense. I think one reason this verse is so appealing is that the English word prosper in our NIV translation implies wealth, or at least success, right? It implies things are going to go well in your life, having all that you need. Another translation, the ESV, which some of you have, says uh, that God has plans for welfare, which is a sense of that word which we don't tend to use anymore, and so it has a sort of a, an unfamiliar ring to it, you know, seeking uh, one another's welfare. We don't tend to use that phrase much. But the Hebrew word behind those translations is shalom, which is peace, But it's so much more than simply peace. Shalom speaks to a sense of completeness and contentment. Shalom is a taste, a glimpse of life as it's supposed to be according to God's design. And when I say contentment, it's not in the sense that we have all that we want, but it's contentment. Biblical shalom is contentment in the sense that we have all that God knows we need in that moment, in that place, even if it's in exile. Even in your suffering, even in your sense that you're on the outside looking in, even in your sense that life has not turned out the way you desire it to be, and the pain and the brokenness has been more than you believe you can bear, even then God promises to satisfy That's the note of faith that undergirded everything that Kristen shared, continuing to cling by faith. That's why God has to say in exile, keep on living life. Press on. Live in the present. Don't just wait for the future to come around. Don't just wait for the, the relief from your situation, for the solution to all your problems to suddenly fall into your lap. Figure out how God wants to use you right where He has you now. And then the second half of verse 11 does point to the future, to real and lasting hope. <clears throat> Kristen's spirit-filled instinct is exactly right when she refers to this Jeremiah 29, 11 promise as God's Word that is still true and trustworthy. Trustworthy despite the present sufferings. In Jeremiah's context, the Israelites, at least their descendants, would eventually go home. They'd be allowed by a future ruler of that land to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. But ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy still today, hundreds of years after Jeremiah's time, still to this day awaits the day when Jesus returns to complete all of history. When all of God's people who have trusted in Jesus the Son are welcomed into His presence, our real and final home where we will never be uh, kicked out of, where we f- will fully belong, where we will never be abandoned, where all pain, suffering, any reason for tear, tear tears, even death itself, will be no more. That's the last pages of the Bible promise us with rich detail. But for now, we live in exile. We're not yet home. We are pilgrims on the way in a foreign land, aliens and strangers, as the Bible puts it. There's so much injustice, there's so much pain, trial, so much that's foreign to the way that God intended for His people to live and to love and to enjoy. You know, if Jack were standing next to Kristen this morning, Jack was last week's grace story, if Jack were standing up here this morning, I, I think he'd say this as he did last Sunday, don't wait for tragedy to strike in your life, Don't wait for things to magically all work out. Don't wait for exile to end that you might return to where you exactly want to be. Don't wait for any of that. Trust in Jesus Christ today. Even in the midst of exile, He has not abandoned you. And Christian would use this language, surrender to Jesus. Surrender to Him. You know, we tend to think, Katie made allusion to this in her prayer earlier, we tend to think of surrendering in terms of obedience. And so a a captured fugitive surrenders to the authorities, puts his hands up, and does what they tell him to do. It's over. The fight is ended. And as worshipers, we might apply that context of obedience in recognizing as worshipers that the proper posture before the Lord, the King of kings, is to yield our will to His. That's a legitimate aspect of what it means to surrender to Jesus, right? In her story, Kristen admitted uh, that for so much of her life, she has resisted this sense of surrendering to the Lord. She uh, didn't want to accept the way God was running things in life. She wanted to stay in control. We all do. Here's one strand of her story. She said, I I felt that I always saw God use people's tragedies to build their testimonies, but I didn't want a tragic story. Didn't I pay my dues already? And it's an attitude that I think each of us can relate to. God, what are you doing? I didn't want this. you've, You've dropped the ball. I read a quote this week. I couldn't quite remember for sure where it came from. Some of you may have heard it. Anxiety is fearing that God won't get it right. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Anxiety is fearing that God won't get it right and you worry because you're not in control. And that is an uncomfortable position to be in. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. How could you do this? and what's implied there, I know better. I would have done this, not that. I would have produced this result, not what you gave to me, allowed to happen to me. Just let me drive, God, and I'll get to where we need to be. But as the modern poet Carrie Underwood puts it, surrendering is, Jesus, take the wheel. It's very different. And then there's the whole different sense of surrendering, right, that has to do with the heart. It's what Kristen described as her desire from childhood to be able to sing that hymn with deep conviction. She said, I wanted my heart to feel what that song so beautifully said. I wanted to own it, as in, I really am yours, Jesus. That's a surrendering that's all about yielding one's heart to another. In love. That's a surrendering that's all about entrusting one's heart to God Himself, to entrust your dreams and your deepest desires, and even entrusting your greatest fears to the one who you believe will care for you. As I read Kristen's notes, there were plenty of moments, as you heard, of raw honesty in pain. Uh, But there was one statement in particular that stuck out, and I thought to myself, as I said earlier, that can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit. It reflects the honest struggle of a Christian woman pressed between the pain of life on one hand and the promises of God on the other hand. Kristen said, I had to seek God Because my brokenness had to mean something, right? There's that pesky gospel again. Brokenness brings redemption. I stand before you not as a sunshine Jesus person that speaks all kinds of Christianese, but a sinner broken, whose hope is that God is who He says He is, a sinner that believes in God's goodness. Victory in the Christian life doesn't mean, you know, joy, joy, joy everything's okay. I'm fine. You fine? Victory in the Christian life means still clinging by faith, maybe by one little fingernail, to the reality that God is still who He says He is. He is the God of resurrection. His promises have not failed despite how ugly life had gotten, and knowing that He's coming again. Kristen is a woman in exile, as are all of us, She's not yet home. And there's so much to this life that is not as it should be. But God has spoken a clear word of promise. I have plans for your shalom here and now. Look for it and trust me. But remember that my greatest plans are to give you a future and a hope. In your exile living, will you join Kristen in trusting this Jesus who is making all things new, including your broken heart and body and mind, because He is the one who willingly subjected Himself to the ultimate exile on the cross, experiencing hell in the absence of the Father, cast away from Abba's presence so that you and I through faith in this same Jesus might be brought home in newness of life through resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, after a grace story has been told, there's still pain. There's still struggle. There's still trial. There are still questions that we may never get satisfactory answers to. But after a grace story has been told, Lord, you are more magnified because you alone are the one who can heal our brokenness. You alone are the one who has conquered death itself through resurrection, reversing the worst that this world can bring. And we trust you to do the same. Give us a, a taste, a rich outpouring of that now. Shalom here in the present even as we know and as we wait for the fullness of that blessing to come on the last day when Jesus returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.